ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and it is Friday, January 23rd, 2015, and we have with us today Susan Fowler. And Susan has written uh, really uh, what I believe is a seminal work in the area of leading and energizing and engaging uh, not only your employees, but I have to tell you, as I was reading this, uh, I really thought about parenting in a big way, um, and it's called why motivating people, and you can substitute your kids, uh, doesn't work and what does. Susan, I am so happy to have you back on our show. Thank you so much, Chicky. So, Susan, I want to, you know, I always like to hear a little bit about you before we dive into the content of the book, and, and there is so much meat uh, in this book that I, I was uh, saying before we got on the air. I really think we may go a few minutes longer than 30 minutes today. Um, but I'd like to hear first about you and for our readers who aren't familiar with you, uh, also a little bit about your relationship with Ken Blanchard, who uh, who wrote the foreword to your book. Uh, well, thank you for asking. You know, when someone says uh, what, a little bit about the history, your history, it, it makes me shudder because I realize I probably sound a lot older than I feel at this point, which I guess is a good <laughs> thing. But <laughs> um, I've been, um, my background is in advertising and marketing, and owned my own advertising agency, and I realized many, many years ago that if I wasn't truly passionate about what I was doing, that I wouldn't be able to do it until I was as old as I am today. And so I started uh, really thinking about what my passion was, and it turned out that it was around traveling, learning, and teaching. That's kind of what it, it came down to. And little did I know that there was actually a career where you could get paid to talk, travel the world, and teach what you most need to learn, which is one of my mottos in life. And so I've been very blessed to be in the, the uh, speaking, keynoting, consulting world and started uh, writing. Uh, I've written six books, actually, and a number of them with Ken Blanchard. So I wrote situational, well, it's the self version of situational leadership. It's called uh, Self-Leadership and the One-Minute Manager and have done a lot of work with the Ken Blanchard companies. And so I asked Ken to write the forward and the afterward of my book because one of the other privileges I've had is literally traveling around the world, testing these ideas with real people in real organizations and and watching people shift their own motivational outlook and then learning to facilitate other people's uh, shift of motivation. So this book isn't just conceptual or theoretical, even though it's really based on science. It's practical application, and through the Ken Blanchard companies, um, I've had the great honor to be able to actually prove that these ideas work. Right. Well, that that was really, uh, and I, I didn't know about that relationship, so it's it's uh, very cool to to understand the background about that. And and I think it's interesting also that you started on on the advertising side of things and. You know, and and people don't think about that world as being terribly focused on on leadership, and and I I say that with all deference and due respect to that particular, um, you know, part of of uh, the business world. But you know, you think about creatives and you know <laughs> yeah. tapping into all of those ideas, and that that 
sometimes the, the harder side of leadership can get in the way. Well, I'm so glad you said that because that really was what was almost foremost in my mind later on when I got into the work and the research that I've been doing was, oh, how I wish I had understood this back in the day. Because we think that in order to uh, have uh, people be creative, we either, we, we're either using traditional modes of, of motivation which undermine the creative process, or we think we just got to let them go and let them do their right. thing, and we don't provide them the structure they need. And so I really feel that the new science of motivation is is wonderful for, one, bringing out the best creative work of people who are in the creative fields, but also it's bringing out the creativity in people who might not have ever thought of themselves as, as supposed to being creative. So, I mean, if you're an administrative assistant – your creativity in terms of the way you do your job is absolutely essential. And I've got some examples as we get into our conversation um, that I can provide of, of people doing just that. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because as I looked at this book, and I am an absolute sucker for uh, methodologies. And, you know, over the last 19 years, I've been uh, doing strategic consulting, usually around growth and innovation. And so, you know, while leadership always has, uh, you know, certainly an impact on what I do, leadership hasn't been my area of consulting. Um, but as I opened the cover of your book and pulled back the dust jacket and saw your spectrum of motivation, which is really the model that you describe throughout this book, I really got excited. Um, and, you know, as, as you probably know, I, I interview a lot of authors on a lot of topics and, you know, have done about 400 of these uh, since I launched my shows back in uh, really the late 2008 period with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And, but this one grabbed me, and I'll tell you why, and then I'll let you talk a no, little bit. No, please do. I'm, uh, I'm actually really, really curious. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I have, and as recently as last Friday, I was with a client uh, in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I was talking to them uh, about their metrics and, you know, what are they measuring and about their compensation plans and what they're rewarding. And I said the old, which I realize now is a very tired phrase, of what gets measured gets accomplished and what gets rewarded gets repeated. And I don't even know who said that, but your first chapter of your book totally turned that on its head. And, and it takes a lot to shake me up, uh, Susan, but i got to tell you, I'm now sitting back and questioning a lot of the things that I've told people over the years. And um, so I haven't fully made it through the book, just in full disclosure, okay. um, but I can't wait. And I'm going to do it with a pen in hand of, of writing down my notes of how I need to shift what I do. Um, so with that said, um, why don't you tell me why you wrote this book. You, you've written a number of other books, and again, and I'm sorry, I thought we had uh, had an interview before, but I, as I'm looking back, I, I, uh, I think I'm just remembering um, uh, my interviews with Holly Green, who also works with Ken. Do you know Holly? You know, I, yes and no. Um, so I, I could Anyway, that, that's there, what yeah. I was remembering, so yeah. I apologize yeah. for, for uh, saying I, 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 took, I, took my only, I took my only sabbatical of my professional life during 
Holly's tenure. So that's why oh, I say yes and no. <laughs> well, yeah. she she's amazing uh, and has been a real supporter of the Executive Girlfriends Group. We've interviewed her multiple times. Um, but anyway, I, I would like to hear why you wrote this book. Why this book and why now? You know, I think it ties, Chicky, the reason I wrote this book, I think, ties to a lot of what you were just saying in terms of it turned traditional ideas upside down and had you questioning some of the things you might have actually even consulted with in the past. And I realized that people needed the science. They needed to understand the truth of certain things. Um, And they also needed pragmatic ideas, but they also needed a shift in their own belief system about what motivation is. So we can't take advantage of all this great new science if we go into it with belief systems that are steeped in what we thought was true. You know, I wrote a blog for HBR um, in November, and I was so disappointed because it came out. I worked so hard on this blog, and it came out on Thanksgiving Day, and I thought, who in the world is even going to see this blog on Thanksgiving, you know, this week, that weekend? And And HBR contacted us and said, what did Susan do? We had 75,000 hits on the first day, on Thanksgiving Day. And it's only grown since then. Well, you know what the topic was? Letting go of Maslow. Because the most popular motivational theory in the world has never been empirically proved. Maslow himself said, these are just some ideas I'm throwing out there. And people kind of glommed onto them. But it's actually, in many respects, done more harm than good because it's shaped beliefs that simply are not true about the nature of human motivation. So I just really wanted a book that did three things. I wanted to um, upend or help people understand a different belief system. I wanted to give them a framework and a course of action that they could then use based on a, a shift in perspective. And then I wanted to give them pragmatic examples and stories and real-world um, successes of how this has been used. Well, and I think, well, I know you have achieved that because you drew me in right away. Uh, first of all, the, the title of the introduction, which is Stop Beating Your People with Carrots. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I really had to scratch my head, and and I – there was a pause between reading that headline and diving into that chapter because I thought, hmm, I wonder what she's talking about. And the story, well, there are two things that jumped out uh, okay. about that. And one is, is, you know, attending meetings, which I, I will talk about in a minute. But the other one was a story that you talked about of healthcare companies who are actually creating incentives, uh, you know, mm-hmm. such as if you will lose a certain amount of weight, they'll give you a, a free notebook. Right. Right. And tell us why that's a bad idea. Well, it's it's confusing to um, HR departments um, because what happens is they run a contest for healthcare, and people join in, and some people actually have some success, and they win their mini iPad or whatever the the prize is. But what they fail to kind of notice is the research that shows. Uh, what happens after those contests end. And so within 12 weeks of a contest ending, even the person or people who have won revert back to their old behaviors. And in fact, if they've lost weight, they not only gain the weight back that they lost, they gain more weight back. Because what happens is um, they they now have a sense of, incomp- uh, in, like they're not competent enough 
they uh, are frustrated, they're disappointed in themselves, uh, they, they lose their own sense of confidence in their capacity to actually master their world, and all of those things are undermining people's basic psychological needs that helps them to thrive. So what happens is they literally have an adverse effect, these contests, and yet we keep doing it. And one of the reasons I think that organizations keep putting people into these contests is because they don't know what else to do. It's like they're really well-intentioned. They really want to reinforce positive behaviors in their people. But again, traditional outdated beliefs about what truly motivates people are just the default. So let's jump into the motivation dilemma just in a little more depth, and we're not going to go into each of the chapters um, at the same level, but I think this one almost everyone can relate. Uh, maybe not if you're a, an entrepreneur that's sitting at home and, and you know you never have, have clients that you deal with, but uh, the whole issue of the meeting story hmm. of tell us about the different situations that occur even in the same meeting room with what motivates people to attend that meeting. Yeah, so one of the biggest fallacies of motivation is that you can motivate people, right? Um, and so what that chapter is really helping leaders to understand is that their dilemma is that they are asked to motivate people when, in fact, that's impossible. And the reason you can't motivate people, which is also the title of the book, is because people are already motivated. People are always motivated. It's why they're motivated. It's the reasons behind their motivation that matter. So you call a meeting and people show up to the meeting. And, and by the way, I do this a lot when I talk to like boards of directors or if I'm doing a keynote or whatever or even a, um, a client call. I ask people, why are you here? Why did you come to this meeting? And then I give them choices. And, and what we realize is, is, is at play in that room, in that meeting, in that moment is what the science tells us, is that everybody's motivated, but they're just motivated differently. So some people are there, but they're really only there in body, not in spirit or mind or heart. It's like they just they, they said yes to the meeting maker and they showed up. And they might even be there feeling very overwhelmed and disconnected from what the topic is or what's <clears> going on right. because, you know, they, they just, they're just they're overwhelmed. They don't understand what value this might have to them. So they well, have a different. And I thought the other important thing, and, and this may tie into one of the other uh, uh, types of people in the meeting, but they know they're going to get assigned a bunch of stuff, and they can't handle what they've got. They're oh, never great time point. to do the work yes. because they're always in meetings talking about doing the work. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, um, yeah. We've all had that. We've all been there, done that, right? Yeah, the monkeys that we have on our back. By the time we walk out of the meeting, you know, we don't. We're going to another meeting and don't have time to take care of the monkeys. So you're absolutely right. So that's what we call the disinterested motivational outlook. And then there's people who might be there because they want to be seen, because uh, it's an image thing, or because they're being paid and they, you know, they're going because that's what you know they get paid to do. And that's what we call the external motivational outlook. And then we have the imposed motivational outlook. And, and I, I just laugh at this because I find myself in the imposed motivational outlook almost every single day where I've said yes to a meeting maker and then I go, oh, I can't believe I have to go to that meeting or, oh, I can't believe I have to make that call. Right. And so the imposed motivational outlook is anytime we say, oh, I have to do it, it's when we feel the pressure or the tension or the um, social expectation or 
our clients or our people are expecting something of us. So that's the imposed motivational outlook. And all of those motivational outlooks, the disinterested, the external, and the imposed, are what we call suboptimal. We can get to that a little bit later. But <laughs> oh, then, Well, I'll tell you okay. what. As I was reading through those three, mm-hmm. which, again, are disinterested, external, and imposed motivation, that's where – uh, the parenting thing just jumped right out. I have got a 14-year-old son oh gosh, yeah. and a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah. And my son, uh, you know, lives between, you know, the disinterested external and imposed <laughs> motivation. And, and he can't ever get out of it because, yeah. and, and I, quite frankly, I think my husband and I keep him there. And, and oh. so we'll come back to that as, as we talk about some of these other things. But, but let's talk about the positive side of that equation and the more optimal, uh, the people who are in the room who really have a reason to be there and, and are present. Because I, I think the thing is, and I don't know if you use these words at all, but in that suboptimal part of this, this diagram, which I'm hoping you have on your, your website or blog somewhere that people can actually see the visual uh, uh, before they uh, – get the book delivered to them, um, is that those people below the line are not present at the meeting. They may be physically there, but they're not present. Yeah, you know, I think the thing that's uh, that's confusing to a lot of leaders especially is that, um, you know, and, and forgive me because I'm going to step on some toes, I'm sure, right now, but the thing that gets me a little bit frustrated about people saying, oh, but they're so excited about this goal or they're really happy about it. The problem with happy and excited is that you could be happy and excited, but for the wrong reasons. So you get a salesperson who is really excited about the big trip you know, to the Bahamas, or you get someone who's really happy because they're number one in the rankings right now. Those are still suboptimal motivational outlooks because they're temporary, they're dependent on something outside of oneself, and they actually, the research shows, um, can't sustain that level of energy, excitement, or happiness uh, long enough to actually sustain performance. Uh, And then, let's say it's a salesperson who wins the trip to the Bahamas, very rarely does a salesperson who's in it for the rankings of the trip or the image or the rewards and all of that, very rarely do they sustain their number one status year after year after year. What we find is that the people who not only achieve their goals but sustain their level of effort and level of performance are in the optimal motivational outlooks, which are aligned, integrated, and inherent. And by aligned, we mean that they're doing what they do based on a set of values. And one of the problems we have in the workplace right now is that organizations have posted their values all over the walls and on cards or whatever on their websites, but very rarely do individuals actually, and I do this, I test people in my my workshops, I I say, what are the values that you bring to work every day? What are your top three values? And you'd be surprised how many people have never articulated um, a developed set of values that they operate with at work. And so it's really hard for people to shift to an aligned motivational outlook if they don't understand what their true values are. Um, and then the inherent, excuse me, the uh, integrated motivational outlook is like the aligned motivational outlook, only it's based on a deeper sense of purpose, and it's almost become a part of who you are. It's like a self-identifying activity, and then inherent is more like your pure intrinsic motivation, where it's it's enjoyable and you do it for the reward of doing it, not for any other reason, and so it's just right. pure intrinsic motivation. Well, and you you tell a, a story uh, at the 
outset of this, I think it was this chapter, uh, about when you uh, made uh, a decision in your personal life about your health. Yeah. And can you give us that little glimmer? Because I thought that that one was really, uh, again, this really hit home to me, uh, the value of doing things for the right reasons and that the things that we find hard and this time of year everybody is you know has shifted focus to their health and you know mm, maybe they're out like, working out more and they're trying to eat the right things but but it becomes hard when you aren't motivated to do that for the right reason so sure yeah, and by, and by the way what you know you just reminded me is, is so or not well reinforced i guess is a, a better word is that i'm really aching to write the next book, um, which is going to really be for individuals and how to use this information for shifting their own motivational outlook rather than just from the leader's perspective so much. But um, the reason I got into all this research uh, was almost 35 years ago now, uh, I became a vegetarian. Um, I was a meat-loving person. I was the kind of person that actually kept a little pot of pork fat on my stove so that I could fry everything in, you know, in, in the fat that would give it more flavor or whatever. So um, I, I loved meat, but I saw something uh, on television about the way we treat meat that we eat, and literally overnight, I became a vegetarian, and I have been a vegetarian now for 35 years. I'm very strict. I'm not vegan, but I have been, but I'm, I'm a very strict vegetarian. And people say, oh, you're so disciplined. How in the world do you do that? And I realized way back then it didn't take any discipline whatsoever. And so discipline now has become my red flag. Whenever I'm doing something, I go, why? I have to be disciplined. It's like, okay, why do I need to be disciplined? It's because at some level, I have not aligned what I'm doing to values or a sense of purpose. And so until I started researching um, the science of motivation, I always wondered why was it so easy for me to become a vegetarian? I knew somehow it was linked to values. But what I really began to realize after studying the new science of motivation is that that there were real reasons that I was able to make that shift so so clearly. So let me just give an example for anybody who, like you say, on top of the year, you, you want to go on a diet. And what I find really funny is that you say, okay, I can't eat gluten or I can't eat bread or I can't eat, you know, whatever. And as soon as you say that, you have actually undermined or thwarted one of your basic psychological needs, which is the need for autonomy. So saying, I can't eat something, um, undermines your need for autonomy. And how do you get your need for autonomy back? By doing the thing that you've told yourself you can't do. So the very process of creating a diet undermines the probable success of that diet. However, when you're able to say, I am going to eat this way because I have a value around preserving the planet, saving right, animals, right, uh, right. being healthy, living for my children's, uh, you know, um, so I can be a, a better parent and in my, my children's health, be a good role model, then you're able to sustain those positive eating habits. Well, and I'm so glad that you're going to translate this into that world because, again, I, I think the whole issue of parenting and, and really uh, the word discipline is a good one and, and, and busting, busting up that word, um, you know, because I, I have um, taken control of my health for the first time mm. and, you know, am not on a diet, but I went to see a, a dietitian and I'm going to see a, a doctor who focuses on uh, finding root cause of things rather than throwing medicine at it. 
you know, because I'd like to be free of, you know, taking statins for the rest of my life. And, yeah. you know, just all of those things. And, again, I have called it my Project 75 or Beyond 75, which is both of my parents died at 75. Oh, my and, gosh. And yeah. I've got kids, you know, that, uh, as I said, are, are uh, just yeah. about 15 and 17. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm close to 60 and my husband is over 60 and you know I think wow that's not a long time into the future so I better mm-hmm. take charge now so uh, again okay, can I just say move, something to, about yeah. that Chicky real yeah. quick is that what you've just expressed in that conversation was one I'm taking charge now that's uh, your sense of autonomy so that's one of your basic psychological needs that you're satisfying just through that statement and then you are getting all the information you need and you're creating a structured yes. plan, and that's giving you one of your other psychological needs, which is competence, a need uh, f- to feel that you are growing and learning and that you are getting better at something and that you know what you're doing. Uh, and then it just sounds to me like, you know, also you're, you're satisfying your need for relatedness, which is, you know, to be there for your children because there's a sense of love and community there. So what you've just done is satisfied what we call your psychological needs for ARC, autonomy, relatedness, and competence, just in the, in the, in the statements that you gave me. And that's, that's what I'm asking leaders to do. That's what I would ask parents to do, is to have conversations with people so that they start to get in touch with the possibilities of their autonomy, right. relatedness, right. and competence. So back, back to the business world side of this. Um, so we we have established in the the first section of this book that there's this dilemma. There's there's actually this war that goes on uh, between uh, leaders and their staff, and between uh, you know even the staff between their own ears of of arguing with themselves about things. And so you then move into uh, a chapter that talks about what really motivates people and and what the real story is behind it and so i'd like to talk a little bit about the true nature of human motivation because this is the the heart of the science that you are tapping into exactly exactly and so most of us um have been operating and a lot of the research over the the years has been um operating on what's called drive theory and drive theory is that um we, as human beings, have certain um, kind of inherent drives that are what predict or cause our behavior. And the problem with drive theory has always been that it's based on uh, deficit. So, for example, if you're, you have a tissue deficit of liquid in your body, you are thirsty. You drink. Now you have you know, replenished your tissues. You're no longer thirsty. So uh, the problem with all of that is, is that what the new research says around psychological needs is that they're just the opposite of biological needs or drive theory. In other words, when you have your psychological needs satisfied, it feels so good. You have such positive energy, vitality, and a sense of well-being that you want to sustain that. And so that's what motivation is. It's a sustained effort over time. And so... Um, that's what optimal motivation is, I should say. It's a sustained effort over time. And so um, what we're really trying to help people understand is the nature of human motivation is based on the satisfaction of these three psychological needs that I was just talking about, um, autonomy, relatedness, and competence. So uh, as uh, the next chapter actually talks about the danger of drive. Mm-hmm. And, and so talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, I think that the danger of drive is that, and gosh, you know, I just, 
I've asked all of my uh, the people that I work with, my team, that I want the word drive eliminated from everything we we do. But it's 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 just everywhere, isn't it? Um, and and the reason is because I think we believe that if we drive for results, if we you know drive for perfection, if we drive for excellence, that that is um, going to help people. But what we also also find is that this whole concept of driving is based on the idea that people aren't motivated, that right. people don't have enough motivation. And so when we keep focusing on driving people, what happens is we do the default. We're more automatically defaulting into, oh, that person doesn't have enough motivation, so I'm going to give them something to bridge the gap. So we start defaulting to incentives, to bonuses, right. to, to power, to status, thinking that those are the things that are going to drive people to be more motivated. When, in fact, what we really need to be doing is to be saying, how do we satisfy people's basic psychological needs? And that's a very different process. And ironically, that means not focusing on the results, but on how those results are, are obtained, on the process of getting those results. Right. So... You know, the interesting thing uh, that keeps popping into my head, uh, because we, we have heard women say, oh, men are just lazy, <laughs> right? They, don't, they aren't motivated. So oh, wait a minute, that's their... not true? <laughs> Sorry. Hey, I'm going to put you on the spot here, because what I want to know is, are there differences between men and women in what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, the science uh, regarding these three psychological needs, the reason I think they're so exciting, and I personally have experienced this, as I said, literally teaching this worldwide in China and India and all over Europe and you name it, um, is that these psychological needs are universal. So it, it, it's, they're, not, they're not different depending on your gender or your generation, your culture, your race. Um, every human being has these psychological needs. Now, the way they might get played out might be generational. Um, um, I have not seen any research to say that they're gender-based, but I do believe that in our culture, because of our um, enculturation, if you will, that there are certain things that women are more aligned, integrated, or inherently motivated to do compared to men and vice versa. And so our... um, testosterone levels or our estrogen levels or our upbringing or, you know, the roles that we play in our work and our life absolutely play into what we find optimally motivating versus suboptimally motivated. Now, you then dive into the notion that motivation is actually a skill, which implies Mm -hmm. that you can hone that skill. And I think that is probably the most exciting revelation through all of this is that through the research that the Ken Blanchard companies has done as well as the uh, research in the academic motivation um, world, uh, what we understand is that every single day people are going through an appraisal process. They're looking at their work environment and saying, do I feel safe and secure or do I feel threatened? Do I feel pressure or do I feel um, do I have choices? And so they're constantly evaluating subconsciously or sometimes consciously and coming to conclusions about how they feel in the workplace. 
So it's kind of ironic that feelings are not really, you know, uh, explored or tolerated or, or a subject of conversation in most organizations. But what we know is that people come to conclusions about their well-being or ill-being, and that those conclusions about well-being lead to people's intentions and behavior. And so we started looking at that appraisal process, and we were able to identify that when people have a positive appraisal process, that they have positive intentions in the workplace, and we've identified five intentions that people who, when they're optimally motivated, have versus people who are suboptimally motivated. And it's ironic, not ironic, but it's exciting, <laughs> that those five intentions also are the intentions that are characterized by what's called employee work passion. So what we find is that when people have a positive appraisal experience over time, they have the intention to stay in their organizations and endorse the organization to other people to perform at above standard expectations, to use discretionary effort on behalf of the organization, and to be an organizational citizen, to to use citizenship behavior. So we thought, wow, if, if that appraisal process is happening constantly throughout the day, and we know that there's really long-term benefit and short-term benefit for having a positive appraisal, what if we could teach people the skill of actually managing that appraisal process? And that's what our training program, Optimal Motivation, is all about, and that's what I was actually teaching, practicing, to get the results that we express in the book. Right, and so you, you call this a, a motivational outlook conversation. Exactly. And, and so what, what are the characteristics um, of that? And, and maybe, maybe I should ask the harder question of if you've got someone who has been somewhat of a problem employee, they're not engaged, um, you know, they're living in that, uh, that bottom half of, of the, uh, the diagram, um, how do you use a positive outlook conversation? And I, I'm asking this also, of course, as a parent of, of a, a son who, who uh, hasn't made it to the top yet, uh, the top part of that, of really doing things because he loves to do them, uh, other than fishing and, you know, I mean, some of his personal passions. But, I mean, the things that, like reading a book. You know, he'll read a book if I make him sit down and do it, but then I'm the one who's making him live in that Oh, problem. gosh. Exactly, exactly. And, boy, when you're in a position of power, you have to be really sensitive because um, when <laughs> you use it. Motherhood is power, yes. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 just, we just did a huge study and showed that, that leaders and parents cannot use power to help a person shift their motivational outlook, but they can absolutely use their power and usually do to keep them in the suboptimal motivational outlooks. So your instincts are absolutely you know, right on target. Uh, um, so, you know, that's a, it's, it's, a, um, it's an answer that I want to give in a short, sweet couple of sentences, and it's also a skill that, um, that requires some practice and understanding. So when you're having a motivational outlook conversation with someone, it's as simple and as challenging as, as helping that individual get to the underlying reasons that they're either doing or not doing something. So if it's your son and reading a book, for you to understand, and excuse me, let me back that up, because it's not at all about your understanding, by the way. And that's one of the hardest things is that this is not about Chicky understanding it. It's about her son understanding it. Right. So it's you facilitating his understanding of why he might read a book and why he doesn't want to read a book. And for him to, to get in touch with 
those underlying re, you know, reasons. What most Here's the biggest pitfall that I see leaders and parents doing is, oh, you don't want to read that book. Let's have a problem-solving conversation about this because this is obviously a problem. And <laughs> right. let's come up with some action plans. You know, you read five minutes every night or just start reading for five minutes and then maybe you want to go on for – you know what? We, we start right. coming up with all these plans, right? But any coaching intervention, any action planning, any problem-solving conversation is going to be built on sand and worthless if you haven't previously had a conversation about why would the person do it or not do it in the first place. Right. So helping them, and I swear, just asking why and asking them for the permission to, you know, to kind of get at why, why is that? Well, why is that? Well, why is that important or why isn't that important to you? And just having that sincere, authentic conversation helps them get to a place where they start to either align with their values, connect to a noble purpose, somehow get in touch with their autonomy, relatedness, and competence needs. So it's a fascinating process and one that I think I described fairly well in the book um, in the, in the, it's, that can be taught to leaders. And obviously, um, I do this to myself all day long. I'm going into a meeting. How do I feel about that meeting? Why do I feel that way? Oh, I'm a little bit afraid. Why am I afraid? What am I afraid of? I'm afraid I'm going to look stupid. Why am I so afraid I'm going to look stupid? Because I care about the image. Why do I care about my image? You know, it's just fascinating. to you, wow. just, you know, you just keep kind of digging, and all of a sudden you get to this, wow, I'm really insecure about my level of competence going into this. Why, you know, why would I be insecure about that? And then I get in touch with what have I accomplished, what my strengths are, what I bring to the party. And it's, it's just fascinating how that then um, I get in touch with my psychological needs are really being satisfied. I was just distracted by all the other crap out there. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I know, say that I on, on jump, it. but just because we're uh, we're running a little bit low on time, and I I want to make sure that we touch on uh, rethinking the five beliefs that erode motivation to begin with in yeah. in the workplace, uh, because I I think this is really the heart of the matter. Because as you mentioned in the beginning, we have been operating on beliefs that just are not. Uh, you know, they don't have a foundation in reality. So so what is the first one? The first one, and I guess I should have my book out. I'm doing this all by memory. But uh, the first one oh, is, well, is oh, no, I, I know it is. It's not it's just business. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. Um, yeah, if it's, if it's, um, it, it's not uh, personal, it's just business. And I, I just challenge leaders to think what might they be doing differently if they switch that belief around and have the belief that if it's business, it is personal. Because it would give us the opportunity to deepen relatedness, one of the three psychological needs that I think is woefully absent in the workplace. And can I, can I just say a, a word about this, Chicky? Because even if we didn't get to any of the other beliefs, I think this is so critical to understanding, um, as you right. say, a lot of the heart of what's in this book. And, and that is that every human being has a need for relatedness. And if we wonder why young people are constantly attached to social media and Facebooking and Twitter and Instagramming all day long, it's because they don't have a sense of relatedness through their work. They have, they, they're not in touch with the meaning behind what they're doing, or they don't have a sense of purpose, or they don't have a sense of community at work. And right. a lot of uh, baby boomers and older than baby boomers, when we went into the workplace, we, 
lot, many of us worked in organizations. I've, worked, I've been with the Ken Blanchard Company for 25 years now. We, we have a sense of community or, or had that through our work. And the younger generations, because of the nature of the workplace today and the, and the nature of the jobs that they're doing, they bounce around a lot. So they don't have that sense of community. But right. I think we can still build it. So people say, oh, well, social media. But the thing is, is I'm not sure that social media is actually meeting their relatedness needs because they no. need a deep <laughs> sense of connection. It's right. not about how many friends you have or how many contacts on LinkedIn. It's about the relationships you have that don't feel like they are contingent or that they're using you in some way, that they're authentic and that they have a sense of meaning. So there's such an opportunity for leaders right now to meet people's needs for relatedness, and we've got to open our eyes to what that looks like. It's, it's, it, you know, it's having meaningful conversations around emotions. It's caring about what people feel like during the day. It's important. Right. Oh, no, no doubt about it. And, and you know, I, I have that conversation again with my son all the time because, you know, he'll take a picture of a fish and then tell me how many people have, have looked at it and, mm-hmm. and even how many fishing magazines are following him, you know, which actually uh, is keeps me a little bit hopeful because he's understanding the importance of that if someday he wants to have a fishing show on television that, you know, having that foundation of business people caring about what he's doing is actually a good thing. So, so um, there would be, I'm going to interrupt because that would be a great example for you to say, why are you so excited about right. the fishing? So then what he does is he gets beyond, oh, look how many hits I have or how many likes right. I have. And gets in touch with, you know what, I have a purpose. I have a purpose to have a fishing show someday to to help people understand the joys of, you know, reflecting while you're fishing or whatever. And this is evidence that I'm on the right path, or this is evidence that what I'm doing works. It's building my competence. I'm growing and learning. Right, right. So that's an example of where you can intervene and have a very quick little motivational outlook conversation. Oh, I love that. I'm going to have to read that chapter a couple of times, Mm -hmm. I can see. (laughs) So um, the next one is, is, um, and, and we all get tied up in this, that the purpose of business is to make money. And, and, you know, whether it's companies that focus on top-line revenue or companies who focus on bottom-line profit, uh, when we get tied up in the money side of things, we actually don't do as well. Uh, absolutely. In fact, one of the metaphors I, I talk about in there is that, you know, we say that the, the purpose of business is to make money or make a profit. You know, you wouldn't say the purpose of your life is to breathe, eat, and sleep. You, you need to breathe, eat, and sleep. You need to drink water. You need to do all those things, but that's not the purpose of your life. So, right. yes, companies need to make money. They need to make a profit, but that's not the purpose of a business. Think about how things would be different, how we would reframe our metrics, how we would present our outcomes to individuals in the workplace if we were to say the purpose of business is to serve. Right. Very different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the thing that occurred to me as I was uh, reading that is, and I work with companies all the time that, you know, all they're focusing on is, well, how can we grow that top line by this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, again, this client I was with on Friday, I kept saying, well, and they happen to be in a B2B business uh, mm-hmm. in the travel industry, and, and uh, the travel industry is where I focus all of my time and attention. And I was saying, you know, what if you were focused on how to help your client grow their business as opposed to you growing yours? It's going to happen as a byproduct of that. I love and, that. That is a perfect example. Perfect yeah. example, Chicky. 
Love it. But, you know, they, they, they just don't think about that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the next one, we, we actually just talked about it, uh, you know, jokingly about uh, mothers being in a position of power. But exactly. uh, the next eroding belief is that leaders are in a position of power. And it doesn't take long uh, to actually learn that that is not the case. No, in fact, I think oh, – it's. can I, I just give you a quick example? Um, a, a woman in one of my um, – seminar said that she had gotten in an elevator at work and she works in a big multinational company and was at the headquarters that has like 30 floors or whatever and so she's on the elevator she's all by herself elevator stops doors open man gets on the elevator turns out it's the ceo of the company she knows this because she's seen him in pictures and videos and in the you know annual reports but she's never met met the president right a ceo and so there all of a sudden she starts to palpitate her heart's rushing and she's starting to kind of sweat and she's thinking i wonder if he's going to say anything should i introduce myself and you know what should i say how should i handle this and he's just looking forward you know and doesn't say anything and she's like okay should i say something should i should i not and then they get a couple floors up doors open and he gets off and as the doors close she is so angry. She says, I was angry at him because he didn't even bother to acknowledge me. He didn't say hello. He didn't introduce himself. Right. I was mad at myself because I didn't extend myself. I didn't say anything. And I thought, if that had been, you know, a, a co-worker or a janitor or um, a, somebody from the outside that she didn't know or recognize, that would have been a very different elevator ride. Yes. But that CEO, by virtue of his title and by virtue of the fact that she knew he was powerful, actually created a different energetic, a different dynamic in that elevator. And so leaders need to be aware that the very fact that they have power actually shifts the dynamic. And that's why they need to be sensitive to it and then make sure that they're not using their power but empowering others uh, to understand their own power, which comes through the satisfaction of their psychological needs. Right, right. So the next one actually is is pretty closely tied. Hello? It's the fourth eroding belief is the only thing that really matters is results. Hey, Chicky, I lost you just for a moment there. Oh, sorry. Um, what I was saying is that the fourth eroding belief is very closely tied to the financial uh, one that we just talked about is the second eroding belief. But this one says that the only thing that matters is results. <laughs> yeah. And so the whole idea is if um, if the only thing that matters is results, then you're always going to be living in the short term, and you're not going to be thinking about the long term. And what I really need for uh, people who I, I hope are listening to this and, and thinking about their own, like, employee engagement initiatives or the whole issue of employee engagement, and we know that, for example, um, that three-quarters of a million to a billion dollars uh, a year is spent trying to fix disengaged employees. And so if, if we understand that um, it's not just the results that we're looking at, it's the way those results are achieved. And so you have opportunity losses of millions, if not billions of dollars collectively when we've got disengaged employees who may be making your short-term results, but uh, what we find is that there's a lot of opportunity loss. So they have higher absenteeism, they have um, less productivity, their, their uh, creativity and innovation is thwarted or, or inhibited. Um, they tend to leave at the first, you know, first chance they get for something better, so they don't have those, those five intentions that people with employee work passion have. 
So what leaders need to understand is it's not just about the results, it's how those results are achieved that right. really matter, not only in the long run, but also in the short run. Well, the next one is going to upset an awful lot of financially <laughs> oriented people, and that is that they're going to have to remove the word KPI from what they do, right? Because the fifth eroding belief is if you cannot measure it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, KPIs are the, the latest buzzword. Uh, everywhere I go, people are talking about their KPIs. And I actually had to ask somebody what it meant, by the way, um, because I, I took some time off from consulting and, and was just building some technology. And I came back, it's like, KPI, what KPI. in the world is that? Indicators, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead, finish your... No, no. Uh, so, so it is key performance indicator. Mm-hmm. But this is if you, the fifth eroding belief is if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so let me just say that um, it's not that you shouldn't have indicators. It's not that you shouldn't have, you know, dashboard metrics. It's the way they get presented. It's the way. It's the type of meaning you attach to it, and so. If you really think, if you're a parent, if I and you are, if I it was to ask a parent, what is it you really want for your child? You know, I don't get a lot of parents saying, you know, I want my child to have a beautiful home with a white picket fence and own a Maserati and be financially set for the rest of their lives. Now, they might want them to have some financial security, but what I hear mostly from parents is I want them to be healthy. I want them to be happy. I want them to to have love in their lives. I want them to have a sense of meaning and purpose. I want them to make a contribution to society. You know, those are things that are not easily measured. And it turns out that the things that are most important in life are also the things that are most important for people at work. Because guess what? As adults, 75% of the time we spend awake is connected to our work. It's getting up and thinking about work. It's getting ready for work. It's getting to work. It's working. It's getting home from work. It's decompressing from work. It's talking about our work. And so if, if we're that connected to work and we don't have a connection with those things that are most meaningful in our life connected to our work, then we are just losing extraordinary opportunities for people's best at work. And so um, I just encourage leaders to, to not just have the indicators, but to help people understand the purpose and the values and the meaning behind them. Right. So, so in, the last, in the last few minutes that we have, because uh, I know you've got another uh, obligation at 1 o'clock, um, you actually give us hope at the end because, you know, as we're going through all of this, it's like, oh, man, I've got to rethink everything. And I remember the story in the beginning of the book of you saying that you were uh, talking about all of this in China. And a guy actually said out loud, you know, that uh, he just expressed his dismay over Shock. that you just, yeah, you've dismantled everything mm-hmm. that he had built his career on. So chapter seven is the promise of this optimal motivation, and you're giving us hope. So so uh, let's close with that. Well, I, gosh, just even the way you set that up, Chickie, gave me goosebumps because I have seen the promise of optimal motivation with Mohammedan in a conference that I was doing of Middle Eastern pharmaceutical salespeople uh, and and saw how, and there's, a, uh, I think, a really touching story about his shift of motivational outlook that he shared with 350 people. Um, and so I see 
that. And then I, 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 you know, I have people coming up to me in my workshops all over the world. I've had them in tears saying, this is what my people are dying for, you know, right. to, to have a choice, to, um, to have, in, you know, their autonomy, to, to think that, that life matters, that they are meaningful, that they're not just the dictates of, of a mean dictator, that they want relatedness, and that we have a right to education, that we, have, that we can grow and learn every day, and that's our human right to fulfill our, our, our basic psychological need for competence. So people all over the world are longing People in the workplace are aching for something. They're yearning for something. They've just never been able to put a name to it. And so they ask for more money or bonuses or raises or the corner office because they don't know what else to ask for. People can't ask for what they don't know they need. And so if we can help people understand the nature of human motivation, then you are going to experience a shift in the way you lead and in the way you live your life. And um, I've also seen it personally. I, I encourage people to read the last story in the book because it's a story about my stepdaughter, Alexa, and my husband, Drea, and an interaction they had that I witnessed that, that helped me see the light and the promise of optimal motivation. And just recently, as I was doing a keynote, I told that story, and then I showed a video, and the video was of a little baby uh, building a tower, and after building the tower, you know, after lots of struggle, and the tower kept falling, and then she finally got the tower built, she looks at the camera and she goes, I did it! I did it! And then I share that the mother taking the video was Alexa, and that the baby is our granddaughter. And so these ideas that we started working with Alexa when she was 12 years old, now as a mother, she is using with her children. And I have seen it come full circle. And it does indeed give me the promise that we can make a better world, and there's people doing it every single day. Wow. Well, Susan, thank you so much for sharing uh, what turned into an hour. Uh, I told you I didn't think we'd make it in 30 minutes, Uh, but this has been amazing. Again, the book is Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does, The New Science of Leading, Energizing, and Engaging. Susan, how can people best contact you? You know, thank you for asking that. Um, I do have a website, www.susanfowler.com, so hopefully that's easy to remember. And there's actually a free motivational outlook assessment that people can take and get immediate results, so I would encourage them to take advantage of that. And then also on the website, there's a link to the book, and so they can download um, you know, the chapter of the book that you, that, uh, you were saying, you know, I, I hope they have a, a place they can look at this before they buy it. So feel free to download the chapters of the book um, on my website. And there's a lot of other really wonderful resources. Like we just uh, published a uh, manifesto about those five eroding beliefs with uh, CEO, uh, uh, 1-800-CEO-READ. Uh, so that's, you know, that's in the uh, website. You can find a lot of wonderful resources there. Well, again, thank you so, so much, Susan, and uh, I just wish you uh, all the success. It sounds like you're already enjoying that, so it seems redundant to even say that. No, I love it because you know what it does? It gets me in touch with how optimally motivated I am, and I want to thank you because uh, discussions with people like you really reinforce that um, I'm, I'm on the right path. It's, it's really exciting. Thank you. Well, excellent, excellent. So have a great weekend. And for those of you who'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, 
uh, just go to www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We also have a Facebook group and then a private uh, Facebook group for our members. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jackie. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Jackie Fitzgerald. Thank you.